Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. We have another live revived conversation coming at you live? today. Well, uh, live for me and you talking to each other, pre-recorded for. <laughs> anyway, we are excited of, to talk today about lessons learned throughout church history. What really what Revive Thoughts is all about. Uh, I am excited. I'm going to tease here at the top of the show. Next week we have a Jonathan Edwards sermon. Uh, coming that I'm very excited about. I'm looking forward. I know it's been a hot second since we've had a good uh, run of sermons here, but it is on its way uh, starting next week again with an Ed- Jonathan Edwards sermon. So uh, be sure to tune in next week. Today we're doing a revived conversations, but first we got some Patreons to shout out, right, Troy? Yes, we do. So we wanted to say thank you to John and Kyla for joining us on Patreon recently. We really appreciate those of you who do. We also have some Apple podcast reviews. We had asked a few of you to write some in, and one of them, encouraging to my spirit, I have really been enjoying binge listening. Many of the preachers I've heard of, but I still learned something new about them from the overview before the sermon. I've also learned of godly men I had never heard of before. Thanks, guys, and keep up this great ministry, please. And another one that we had come in, a refreshing reminder. I love this podcast. Being a fan of history and a believer, I particularly enjoy church history. Understanding the events of the past and the men and women God has used to mold and shape his purposes encourages my faith and gives me the perspective needed in an increasingly dark and evil world. Thanks to Revive Thoughts and your ongoing faithfulness. Romans 11.36. Ah, oh, man, that warms my heart. It's nice, it's nice to hear you read encouraging things about our show. Uh, today... We're kind of doing some um, some editorial theorizing, right? We're looking at people throughout church history in the past and thinking, you know, what what was it about their lifestyle? What did they have in their lifestyle that was different than we have in ours today? And is there things we can learn from that? Is there things we can apply to that in our day and age? You know, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, your you know your walk with God, what are you doing practically each and every day? Uh, what is different in these men of God throughout church history? than uh, what we deal with in our current generation. Uh, Troy, you got some quotes to start us off with. Is that right? That's correct. So I had two kind of quotes. One is kind of, they're both kind of verses and quotes that I think really are central to what we do at Revive Studios. The first one comes from Hebrews 12, 11, or sorry, 12, 1. This comes right after chapter 11 of Hebrews, where we walk through the hall of faith, seeing all the faithful men and women of God. And then we get to this verse, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us set aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. And I think that this verse is a really good one. And you could easily say, well, that's talking about chapter 11. It's not talking about, you know, Christians today. But I don't think that's true. I do think that, you know, even though the men and women of church history are not inspired scripture, I do think we can learn from them. We can be encouraged by them and that we you know, I think that if God took such careful care to, to you know, write down and keep a hold of the memories of those who lived faithfully for him in the Old Testament and in Acts and the New Testament, I think that what the church has done throughout history is also very important to God. 
and is, you know, the work of his body through the earth. And so I think we can learn a lot from it. The other quote that stands out to me, and we quote this one a lot around the studio, is this Jonathan Edwards quote. It comes from the beginning of the Diary of David Brainerd. This is a very important book to church history. Jonathan Edwards had written on the story of David Brainerd. David Brainerd was this missionary. He spent a few years in the missionary field. He was dying, and he's a young man of tuberculosis. And at the very beginning of this journal that Jonathan Edwards of his had edited and published, he wrote, there are two ways of representing and recommending true religion and virtue to the world. The one is by doctrine and precept, and the other is by instance and example. In other words, he's saying there are two ways for you to learn about God, for you to grow in your faith, to recommend true religion, to become a faithful Christian. It's the doctrine you can, the precepts you can learn, you know, the textbook, you can learn the systematic theology, you can learn all that, and that is great. And Jonathan Edwards wrote a lot of those kind of books. But his one book where he used instance and example, this diary of David Brainerd, actually became his biggest selling book. If you ask people in the late 1700s who Jonathan Edwards was, or if you had one of his books, it was this book, The Diary of David Brainerd, they would be most likely to have. It was sold all over North America and all over Europe. It was a huge, huge inspiration to many, so much more than all the theology books that Jonathan Edwards had written. And I think it's because there's something about examples of the faith lived faithfully that can be so powerful to us today. And so when I, when I was thinking about this episode, you know, you'll see videos and, and blogs and things, and all the time they'll be out there going, you know, here's five tips to be a faithful man of God today, or here's, you know, eight ways to grow in your walk with God. And there's always these people putting out these ideas. For us, I wanted to give some tips from church history, things we can learn directly from these wonderful men and women of God who can kind of encourage us right where we are. How can I grow today? What are the things the greats did? I don't expect you to be able to do all of them. I can't do all of them, but some of them. Maybe we can take some of those principles and themes and some of those tips and apply them to our life. Awesome. Yeah, great setup there. Uh, I know I have one in my mind but I don't, I don't want to take the cake. Do, do, I don't know. What do you, do you want me to start off, Troy, or do you want to start us off? What do you yeah, think? Yeah, start us off. Let's hear, let's hear the Joel, the first okay, one. Okay. So the, the thing that instantly came to my mind when you said this stuff, and you know, you know, whenever we editorialize and stuff like this, maybe we are you know, peering into our own psyche. You know, there's a little bit of self-analyst that, that of course plays into uh, how we look at these things as well. But um, it's just the amount of time that these people spend alone with God uh, time and time again. And, you know, I, I don't remember specific names off the top of my head. Maybe you can help. If I, if I try to start naming people, I'm sure I'll have it wrong and, and someone will write in. But it's not uncommon at all for uh, there to be counts of these people spending like two to three hours a day in prayer and in the Word of God uh, as just part of their daily routine, which kind of, you know, is mind-boggling for us to think about in today's day and age. But it is something that not only do we see precedent precedent for throughout these men of God in in biblical history, it's something we see with as a biblical precedent as well. Uh, even in Jesus's own life, as he goes through his ministry, as he gets increasingly busier, he also increasingly prioritizes and values uh, getting away time in solitude, time getting away and spending some time uh, with God the Father. And it's something that I think is, it's really hard in our day and age. It's, it's something that I do think is, is kind of lost. And again, maybe speaking from a bit of personal experience, but in the 21st century information age, right, we have so much going on all around us. We have the internet, 
We have podcasts in our ears 24-7, music on demand through our apps of choice. Uh, It is so rare to have times of silence, to have times of setting aside in prayer and in in the Word of God. And you can set, you know, time on your alarm to do, you know, like I'm going to do a 20-minute devotion each morning, but it's hard for us to psychologically separate our fast pace, you know, going point A to point B lifestyle in a way that makes time for God. I recently was trying to just do my morning drive, my morning commute with no podcast, no music, you know, no no exterior Ooh. senses at all. It's like a 15-minute drive and it's hard. <laughs> it's hard because you, you have that muscle memory and it's your when your mind isn't being occupied, you know, it says something about our generation and our psyche where that uh, we don't like that and that shouldn't be the case like there's no reason that it should be bad to be alone with your thoughts but it's something that we're terrified of and as you know that says something about us that uh you know i think we need to improve and we need to address these people throughout church history they're you know being alone with your thoughts is a good thing and it's a lot of people's worst fear to have leave their phone behind at their at their home and they don't have their phone with them for the day because again what are they going to fill their mind with uh they're going to have to be alone with their thoughts it's something of terror and fear when it's something i'm trying to incorporate more into my life i'm trying to because because we see that again throughout people in the bible and throughout people in church history um a, a time in stillness and silence is a good thing. If I try to start naming names, I'm gonna I'm gonna match the wrong one up with the stories that I'm thinking of. But uh, <laughs> I can it. help you with that. Tell I me. can think of three people right off the top of my head. So in Bible college, I had to I read the diary. I think it was like that called the diary, but the diary of like Jim Elliot. And I remember specifically, he said, "I spend three hours every day in my Bible." And I was like, "Whoa!" And I remember I shared that the class. I was like a project I had to do, and I was like, "Man, this guy." Jim Elliott reads his Bible for three hours a day. Isn't that crazy? And everyone was like quiet. I was like, am I the only one not spending three hours a day in the Bible? I think that's an extraordinary amount of time. Um, that to me was really kind of a, just a, you know, I, I would, I'm, I'm sorry, if you're listening, you thought I did. I don't spend three hours a day in my Bible. I wish I could. I have had times in my life where I would send like, where one day I would get three hours and it'd be amazing. Uh, but I have not done that where I'm just doing that on a daily basis. And I wish I was, it sounds incredible. Another person is uh, Martin Luther, who famously said, I have so much going on tomorrow. I'm going to be so busy that I need to wake up two or three hours earlier so I can spend time with God to be prepared for all that I have to do. I love that. Yeah, I love that. That's another one that I always think of. And Leonard Ravenhill, too. He had this really powerful, I believe it was him. Um, but it could have been actually no i apologize i think it was R.A. tory so no it was R.A. tory excuse me it's R.A. tory in his book you know how to pray he was just like when was the last time you stayed up all night praying that god would move and i was like oh man i don't know that i've ever stayed up all night praying that god would move he's like sometimes the christian needs to stay up the whole night praying and wrestling with god the whole night nothing else but just you the bible and prayer and i was like that's Wow, that sounds really cool. I would love to be able to do that. I do think I'd fall asleep at 11 <laughs> or 12, but I think it's amazing. Um, the idea of it sounds cool. And then I think about how I would, you know, parent my kids the next day, I'd be super tired. So it is a little bit like, how do I practically do this, Ariatori? But this idea of spending more time with God, I think it's something we need to 
Mm. We need to work on it in our hearts and our minds. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great place actually to start is looking at these men with, of God and people what? of God throughout history. They have very, right. very strong One more thought, times. and I'll just interject this. It actually just came to mind. Um, well, recently it was something that John Piper mentioned in, in one, I don't know, one of his little podcasts he was doing. He, he made some comment that was talking about how to balance busy lives and a relationship with the Lord. And he said, you know, sometimes... And, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, sometimes there are times where there's just not enough hours in the day to get everything that we want to get done, done. You know, there's not, there's physically not enough time to do a good job at everything and, you know, still carve out time to spend all that time with God and still be a good uh, a parent or, or spouse and still be good at your job. Uh, and there's just physically not enough time to get all of that done. And that's true some of the time, but it's true far less than we actually think it is. Like the 99% of those scenarios, the Holy Spirit can and does provide time for you to accomplish all those things and be excellent at all those things. Um, it's very rare that we, we think it's a, a much more frequent occurrence than, than it actually is. And it's something that uh, in those instances, the Lord does give us strength and grace to, to complete what he's, uh, what he's called us to as far as how, how to live our life from, from hour to hour and day to day. It's, in some instances, kind of just a lie of the devil. Uh, it, you know, it takes work. You have to be deliberate at it, but uh, the Lord does give you the strength to do that. So I have a couple of thoughts. I'm going to hit just kind of stream three thoughts on you real fast in that notion. So the first is, uh, you were talking earlier about how we don't like to be alone anymore, alone with our thoughts. I really think we could do an episode on how we think differently than people of the past. Maybe save that mm. as an idea for future. Yeah. I could have a whole conversation about how we don't like to be alone with our thoughts, how we don't read books, how we can't listen. I edit sermons all the time that are like 85, 90 pages long. I have to get them down to like 35. But it's not because the content is bad. It's because we can't <laughs> listen to a sermon that long anymore. Even if you were to go to church and the preacher were to pass for were to preach for an hour and a half, you would die, right? Like you just wouldn't go to that church. Even if it was an amazing sermon, some people are going, I would listen for two hours. Would you? I'm not sure that you would. I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would not go to that church with mm -hmm. a two hour long sermon. But that was a pretty common thing back in the day. Sure, there were always, there have always for the people, because there was actually a big battle on Twitter like two months ago. How long can a sermon be? The answer is, there have always been 30-minute sermons. There have always been 25-minute sermons. George Whitfield said, if you preach for more than 25 minutes, your audience better be angels or you better be an angel because no, we're not going to make it. And yet, at the same time, there have also been people who have always been able to preach for like two hours straight, and then they would end the sermon. John Bunyan had an 80-page sermon. He ended it with, after a brief overview of this subject, we'll have to continue on. I'm like, <laughs> a brief? It was an 80-page yeah. sermon, man. Only a Puritan could call that a brief overview. But... At the same time, we have changed. We aren't the people that can do that. And I do think that's for the worst. And I do think that there are things we can do to become more adept at being able to have these big conversations and thoughts. So save that as an episode idea. I think we'll get back to that at some point because I have a lot of thoughts on that. Number two, I do think we all need to look at the greats of history and recognize, you know, God orders our day. He gave you the tasks you need to do. If you can't finish what you need to do in a day, that's probably because you've added tasks to that 24-hour day that, weren't, that aren't from God, they're from you. And you may need to reevaluate what are the things I'm doing or reevaluate what it is you're supposed to do. So either you're doing more than God meant you to do or 
your goal for what a day accomplishment was supposed to be was not God's goal for you. You know what I'm saying? Like when Jesus would do things, he'd get interrupted and he would go do something else. And that, you know, that was when the Lord is showing, like sometimes our plan gets interrupted. Mm -hmm. We go do this other thing that wasn't initially what we expected. And that still showed God's purposes. His, His work was still going fine. He did a different miracle than maybe, you know, the disciples were expecting them to do that day. That's okay. On the other side of it though, if you're always like, man, Every day I get to the end of my day and there's five things I didn't accomplish. I think you have to look at yourself and go, well, okay, wait a second. If there's something keeping you from time with God, you're not able to spend time in worship. You have something on your plate. There's something happening that maybe isn't supposed to be there to a degree. Now, obviously, if you have young children like I do and like Joel does, you're going to hear that and go, you're right. I need to quit spending so much time with my baby. Well, that's not quite correct either, but there is, you may need to reevaluate and reprioritize because 90% of the time, as people in the, you know, in the West, when we say we don't have time, but if you add up all the minutes you spent scrolling on social media and you added up all the time you spent, you know, peering through Netflix to decide what to watch and you added mm-hmm. all the time you spent on these little tasks, you actually get several hours back. You just didn't realize it. The third thought that I want to drop though, is this also comes from a great from history. Hudson Taylor, I remember had this really powerful sermon that we did about a year ago where he said some people are in the opposite camp, then I think this was something I actually wanted to address too. Some people are going, we, there were some people who this episode, you need to say, you need to get more time with God. If you heard the idea of spending two hours with God and you're like, who could possibly do that? You need to reevaluate your relationship with God because there should be sometimes once in a while where you spend more than just the mm. two minutes you, you read your Bible real quick before you head to work or something. On the flip side of that though, Hudson Taylor said there are some people who go to every Bible conference in the world. They read every book imaginable. They spend all day, you know, just consuming and consuming and consuming. And he's like, you're like the guy at the buffet or at the restaurant. You're eating six meals a day. Your stomach hurts. You know, you are literally overflowing with food. You can barely move. You're so fat. You have spent too much time consuming the Word of God and the theology, not because oh, you can spend too much time in the Word of God. No, but in this person's case, he's not applied any of it. You can spend too much time at the buffet eating, right? And what happens? You get fat, you, you become you know, unable to work out, you're, you're heavy set, you can't move, and you're actually a hindrance because all the resources are going to you. And the same way he said, there are people here who we spend so much time feeding you all this theology and doctrine, you haven't applied any of it. You're, you're heavy, you're, you're obese on theology at this point. You need to go apply it. You're not just supposed to learn it. I never go share it, teach it, or apply it. You're supposed to learn it and share it with others. And there are other people out there who, the opposite of time with Devo, they're spending so much time trying to get the perfect theology, having the perfect, 100% perfect thinking of God, and then they can do things. And that's just not how it works. You'll never have a perfect, perfect, perfect thinking of God. Mm. No one does because we're humans. You know, we can learn from him, from his word, but we'll never have a 100% perfect understanding of God until we see him face to face. Quit trying to get this goal that will never happen and get out there and start applying what God has given you before you become a hindrance. And Hudson Taylor was like, I would eat three times a day. That'd be enough food for me to get going. I thought I had to spend like 10 hours a day in the Bible, but my life was so busy, I couldn't do it. And then I finally realized if I eat in the morning, you know, maybe I eat at night, I'm fine. If I'm reading God's word, in the morning and I read it in the night, I don't need to spend the whole day in God's word. I am abiding and trusting that my life is representing him through those other hours. And I'm trusting that what God gave me in the morning gets me through to the Good night. Stuff. So moving off of personal devotion time, which I definitely wanted to spend time on. I think that uh, we do, and teaching is a whole other aspect too. You know, I think it was, I really think it was G. Campbell Morgan who said, 
my secret, why do I, you know, people ask me, why do you teach the Bible so specially? He was like, I spend, I read every passage before I preach it 40 times. So I trust God to teach me in those 40 different times what it is that I need to know. So he's like, there are things like that, but I want to move a little bit off of kind of ministry because I didn't want this whole episode to just be like, here's what the pastors need to do. I want this to be for all of us. But another thing we need to do is we need to start sharing our faith with people around us, the people who are in our lives. And we need to quit making um, excuses for why we don't do it. You know, and there's a lot of people who, oh, I'm too young. Look, Charles Spurgeon was preaching by 17. You know, you're not too young to be sharing your faith. And we obviously have the command from Paul to Timothy, you're not too young. You need to get out there and start sharing your faith. I think evangelism is one of the things I've seen that I am blown away by how much just personal evangelism these people do in history. And I think it's really convicting how much they would just meet people and start sharing their faith. You know, G. Campbell Morgan was famous. um, So I used him twice now, but he was famous for just kind of going through different things, going through towns and like the ministry would take him to lunch or something. And he'd before, within minutes, he would be conversing with the waitress or he'd be conversing with the bus attendant or he'd be conversing with everybody. He wasn't doing it for a show. This was just who he was. He was always trying to share his faith so he could tell people about Christ. And they asked him like, Jude Campbell Morgan, where did that come from? He was like, well, it's always been a part of me, but also I learned it from D.L. Moody and I learned it from watching these other guys who did the same thing where everywhere they went, they were always looking for an opportunity to share our faith. I think so often we think ministry has to be like, I formed a relationship with this person for five years and then I share, or, you know, I've got to do ministry at church. And a lot of these church history guys are not doing that. They're making friendships. Yeah. They're going around, they're talking to people and they're sharing their faith yeah, everywhere, wherever so they much, go. There's so much, again, and I feel like in our uh, society where social media is such a big platform, people feel like they need to have a theological voice. Everyone feels like they need to have a theological opinion on whatever current event or whatever uh, thing that they're studying and, and looking through, which is, I, I mean, I encourage, that's, it's it's good to have uh, a theolo- theologically minded approach to a lot of things, but practically, it's always been the lifestyle of the individual that is the biggest testament, the biggest uh, thing that converts people, that, that, that sticks out to people. People look at the person, they talk with that person, you know, it's something that faith is a verb in that sense, right? It's something that you live out and it's something that you can't fake. You know, you you can talk the talk, uh, but when you're talking about things on an eternal scale, when you're talking about things that really matter, that talk isn't going to do much if uh, people aren't seeing your lifestyle and if that's not making a difference uh, in how they look at the world, right? Uh, And that's something that I think a lot of people overlook and a lot of people, they want so much to be right about something that uh, they forget to make sure that their own relationship with with God is uh, like like you were saying with the you know with Hudson Taylor and the buffet you're putting that knowledge into practice you're putting that into into how you interact with the world how you love the people around you because that's that's what's going to make the difference in the end it's not about what you preach it's what 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 you what you live well, and on that aspect, too, of like, I have to have the perfect theology, so I have to consume, consume, consume. We also, the people of history tended to consume um, thoughts and theology from people that weren't just themselves. And people are going to hear that and immediately. They kind of go, <laughs> oh, I don't like that. I don't know if I should be, you know, listening to people from that other camp. 
you don't have to read from another camp that you disagree with with the idea of I'm going to agree with them, right? Like I've written, uh, I've read Nietzsche. I read Thomas Paine's Age of Reason. I read, you know, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. I'm not a communist. I don't want to be a communist. I didn't read it with a goal of becoming a communist or an atheist, but I read it, read it to understand what were these people saying? What is their viewpoint? How can I learn from them and how can I apply you know, that knowledge should better spread the gospel to others. I found it was extremely helpful in my Bible classes to be able to talk about and say, hey, you know who said that originally? That came from Thomas Paine or that came from this. This is where this idea stems from. This is where this idea ends. And this is why it's dangerous. These have been very helpful tips for me. And I find that we, in, if you look at history, Spurgeon, J.C. Ryle, Warfield, these people were very well read. They could hear a thought and they could tell you that stems from this idea. This is where you got this from. I read this book and let me tell you what's wrong with it. Nowadays, mm. we are terrified to read a book by someone that we disagree with. We would never, ever encourage a Christian to pick up a Nietzsche book because you might end up becoming a Nietzschean. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know that that's the best approach. I think we've created almost a fear now of learning from others and I don't think you should go and pick up a Thomas Paine book and go, I can't wait to learn from Thomas Paine, but I do think we need to create Christians who understand how to read these people and attack them where they are and, and know what they say and know how to have that conversation. That's a little, this goes a little bit back to the brain change, but I think the book reading, this idea again, we shouldn't just be reading what we agree with. We should, I think Revive mm -hmm. Thoughts does that a lot. It's one of the reasons Revive Thoughts is very successful. And so it's one of the reasons Revive Thoughts <laughs> is not more popular is that right. we will take people from different camps who, you know, no one would bring some of these people together and then we'll say, look at these lives lived, look at how they honored Christ and look at these incredible sermons. Wow. I think that's one of the things that has really grown me in my faith and helped me appreciate. It didn't make me, you know, leave what I theologically believe. I didn't suddenly just become, oh, everyone's right. No, but I learned to appreciate the other people in our traditions and what they have brought to the table. And yet it is also one of the reasons the show is not more popular. They're are people in certain Christian communities who go, oh, you have allowed so-and-so on? I'll never check out your show because it shows you lack discernment or this mm -hmm. and that. And I'm like, that's not, that's not the correct approach. And that's not the approach that Charles Spurgeon or D.L. Moody or, you know, a lot of people we look up to, Jonathan Edwards, they did not have that approach in their faith. They would read everything and then tell you what they believe afterwards. They wouldn't just shut out everything and just focus on people who only agreed with their very narrow perspective because that they knew well, that would it, make them weaker in their faith. Yeah, well, it's, I think it's a fear of, of, you know, that maybe they would be convinced of something else. It's it's a lack of foundation. It's a lack of that establishment there um, where it, it might say something about the broader mindset of our current culture that we don't, you know, as a collective body feel very secure in our faith uh, is, is how I, I kind of think of that is um, you don't, you don't want to introduce other theology to someone because they're not strong enough or smart enough to discern that, right? That's where that that fear uh, comes from, and yeah, it obviously introduces a somewhat unstable Christian society that that uh, I think we are seeing a little bit here and there. I, I think it's going to be very damaging, and for people who are trying to raise mm -hmm. children, I would really recommend you don't do that. Don't let your first children, you know, don't let your children's first introductions to new ideas happen when they're adults, because even the ideas may be very bad. They will hear those new ideas and go, why was I never taught any of this as a kid? And that will make them re-question everything. I think the far better approach 
from what I've seen and what I've actually learned from apologetic experts and when I've had discussions and stuff with them is look, begin to show them the new ideas before they become adults. And that's the same with theology too. Like, yes, you have a perspective that's very good and your perspective may be correct. So you should probably teach it, right? But mm -hmm. show them the other perspectives, let them see books and ideas from other people say, hey, you know, I think a very great case that people use a lot of times is uh, C.S. Lewis. You know, okay, C.S. Lewis, you know, he's got some wonky ideas here and there, but overall, here's what we like about him. Let's discern what we like and, you know, maybe leave what we don't. There are examples like that where, you know, most people aren't Anglican. C.S. Lewis is Anglican. Here's what we can learn from what we do like about him. Moving on from that topic a little, a little bit and trying to get back to more, you know, those practical tips. So another thing I would encourage you to do if you are not in ministry if you're listening to shows like this, you probably should be doing something to serve. And people here serve and they automatically say, okay, I need to go serve my church. Yes, you probably should be involved in Bible study or something, but there are other ways you can serve outside of just serving your church. Do not be afraid to be involved in orphanages or not be afraid to be involved in um, you know, outreaches to the poor or leading Bible study at the local homeless shelter. I cannot tell you how many times that, especially on Elisa's show, Mars and Missionaries, where one of the people is very early on, they're just kind of teaching a Bible study to, you know, the poor or they're, you know, and they're involved in their local soup kitchen or they're teaching, you know, some valuable life skills to, you know, her most recent episode, Lilius Trotter's teaching valuable life skills to, you know, women of the street and trying to help them get off that life. It is not uncommon to see people involved in ministries like that. I think we have a bit of a um, church-centric ministry model right now where if you say I'm serving, it's assumed it's at a church. The idea that you would assume on a parachurch organization is almost completely unheard of. I think it's maybe not best that's the only place people serve. I think people need to get out and start getting involved in other communities where they can serve as well. Not just, not again, not ignoring the church, but not just in the church either. There needs to be places outside of that where you are being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And when I look at, you know, J.C. Ryle, I look at uh, Robert Murray McShane, when I look at these people, I see just a huge lifestyle where they're very involved in the people of their community's lives. They're very involved in bringing food. They're very involved in medicine and helping the people around them. And their community, their poor knows that they are present. You know, Hudson Taylor, before he went to China, he spent like a year living in the most impoverished community in Britain he could to prepare himself. And he was one of the only people there, but he was out there living that faith in a very rough community. I'm not saying all of us need to go move to the roughest community we can find, but maybe we should go and serve the least of these. Maybe that should be on our mind because a lot of the people we like in church history, Charles Spurgeon had an orphanage. You know, George Miller had an orphanage. These people had these communities they were serving what about us today? Do you have some group of people like that that knows your name that you show up around sometimes? All right. So we talked about, you know, early on devotional walks. We talked about, you know, reading, how you get to read. We, we've mentioned in episodes before, too, an episode where we talked about creativity, having kind of an artistic outlet. So there's so many different things that we have kind of lost in our current world. If I can take one more principle and, you know, without going for the full, you know, for two hours on these different things we could do, if I can take one more principle, a thing we need to learn to apply today, I would say I think it's a mm -hmm. need for Christians to be open to risk, open to doing something that can fail. And I know that we, you, a lot of people hear that and go, oh, we take risks, we take risks. I, I don't know that we do take 
risks anymore. Mm-hmm. The average church, the average person is terrified, actually, I think, of taking any kind of risks. I think they're really scared to do something on the bolder side of the faith. Yet when we look through church history, it's the risk, it's the people who do things that could cost them everything. It's the people who who did something um, scary. And look, this is not just like I'm going to you know, build a school in, in Zimbabwe or something like that. Although that is the kind of risk more, some of us need to be taking right now. There are people who are listening who you might have something like that that's on your heart that you've been dreaming of in ministry for years. You need to go do it and start putting the steps forward. You know, maybe you need to start your own podcast. Maybe you need to do, there are those kind of risks, yes. And then there's hmm. the other set of risk of, oh, if I say something, if I speak the truth, yeah. if, I, if I share this aspect, it's going to be risky and I might lose something. And I'll tell you, you've got to do that. If you look at who is popular, not who is well-respected or maybe not who is spoken well of in elite circles, but who is popular with average people, there are always people who are saying things that are not supposed to be said at great risk to themselves. And I may not agree with some of these big speakers, you know, some of the biggest names in podcasts or YouTube or whatever. I might not agree with them. But I do admit that if I said, you know, if I was in their shoes, surrounded by all this worldly money that I can lose, if I said those same things, it would be a great risk, right? You can lose everything, and yet they're still willing to do it. Yet then I look at churches and I see Christian pastors who, they're surrounded by Christian congregations. They have almost nothing to lose. They might lose a guest or two or offend a few people's feelings, and then they're scared to speak the truth. And I go, ah, that's not the way it's supposed to be, right? We need to be willing to take risks in what we say, and we certainly need to be willing to take risks in what we do. And we need to be less cautious of our physical lives, I think. I know that's hard to say. People don't like to hear that, but we know that we're going to heaven. So let's live like we actually believe that. Like, let Christian, let the non-Christians around us go, look, I didn't believe in, well, that guy is God, but let me tell you, he certainly thought he was going to go to heaven because his he was not reckless with his life, but he certainly didn't worry about dying tomorrow. He would do whatever it took. He would go wherever it meant he could share the gospel. He was not worried about sickness, not worried about health, not worried about those things. He was just willing to follow God all the way through. I think that is how we can be a bold witness, not always calculating the risk and, oh, will we have enough to afford that? Unless you know, let's put a pin in that in 18 to 36 months from now, we'll get back to it. And let's make sure everyone likes it and all that kind of stuff, that kind of just go forward in what Christ has done. And and some people will hear this and the qualifier will be, well, you know, should we not be testing? Of course, we have to discern and test. I'm not saying this. Okay, Troy, you know, he said, read any theology books and whatever. So I'm just going to throw myself into this other worldview. No, no, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying, be less scared that you're going to fall and trust right. that you actually are following your father and go and do those things that he's been calling you to do that you've been so scared to set out on. Yeah, you you keep saying the word risk, and I don't know if that's maybe the, the best word. to. I, I feel like that could, I don't know, it comes maybe, I think you're just trying to communicate that the concept of being all in on on Christ and, and Jesus, right? We yeah. have this kind of reservation, but uh, where is our identity? You know, is is our identity truly found in Christ? Is that who we are? You know, is that uh, that eternal picture that we find our hope and comfort and identity in? So much of the time, there there is that bit of reservation there and i think that's that's what you're talking about troy as far as yeah. uh that that lack of commitment we're not quite all in and really you know it comes down to a faith issue a lack of faith 
Uh, and I think that prayer there is that, you know, God would, would bolden our faith and make our faith stronger uh, to, to truly be all in on what God is doing and uh, our identity in him for sure. Yeah, I and I would is. I would even say risk kind of makes sense too, and not that I'm defending myself, but it's like sorry, I don't even I, I don't mean a, to trash your no, your risk board. It's, it's applicable. <laughs> Look, I'm about as well, the board game risk, Joel. We're not right. playing risk the board game enough. <laughs> is the problem? Uh, no, but I would say that even in the personal walks, if I would be so bold as to say, there yeah. are a lot of you who have a friend or a family member, right? And you're like, oh, I need to tell them not to be doing uh, they, that. They you know shouldn't be spending so much time with that single woman. They're married. They shouldn't be, you know, gambling. They shouldn't be drinking so much of the drink, whatever it is, right? You know that you need to say something, but you're afraid of the risk of what it would do to the relationship. I think risk adverseness, so maybe not risk and like you need to go take a risk and go put yourself in a dangerous situation. You need to wrestle a lion. That's what church history would do. No, not saying that. I think you need to quit being so risk adverse. Right. I think that, I think my disconnect with that terminology is that a risk might imply that you were wrong in that instance when you're not, you know, from a, from a biblical standpoint, you're saying that you need to be yeah. bold in, in what you know to be well, truth. I, I even think though that you, we as a people need to also embrace doing stuff, even if we're not a hundred percent sure we are right, hmm. being willing to be wrong, being, but still doing something. Hmm. You know, I find that in my life, the doers do things and the do nots will tell you how you were wrong while you were doing it. And yet, even when we fail, we learn from those failures. We may we may do something wrong. You know, Joel and I, we don't like to talk about it, but we once had a podcast before Revive Thoughts, and I don't think Revive Thoughts would be successful had we not failed on a different podcast Absolutely, before yeah. Revive Thoughts, you know? Sometimes, even when we have an idea, we don't know how to do it, we try it and it fails. That growth of learning, that risking it all and embarrassing yourself and falling flat on your face, even that is better, I think, than just sitting around doing nothing, waiting for all the perfect circumstances to come together for you. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, where Jonathan, you know, they're like, I forget the exact context, but they're in battle or something, and Jonathan and his shield bearer, they see some Philistines, and they're like, you know, let's let's run up on them and try to take their camp. And they, they say, perhaps the Lord will, uh, you know, show favor on us and, and we'll win the yeah. fight. And they go up and, of course, they, they win the fight and they go up on it. But it was just all built on Jonathan being like, you know, uh, perhaps this, perhaps the Lord will favor us. Perhaps the Lord perhaps. Will, 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 you know, it was just, he didn't have that confidence, but uh, he was willing to, to go out on. Well, he didn't have the confidence that he was right, but he put his life right. on the line to say that God could do it. And that is, I think that's a perfect example. Mm. Another example from the Bible, Elijah, you know, nowhere in the scripture do we see Elijah was called to have this giant fire fest, right? He was supposed to bring a drought, we don't see where he was supposed to have this fire festival. You know, Matt, he took a great risk mm. praying to God, expecting fire to rally down. And what if he had prayed and looked around and no fire had dropped, right? His, he would have been killed on the spot. I mean, he risked his life to show up, but he believed God would answer that prayer. That kind of risking and that kind of faithfulness and that kind of willingness to be wrong. But still, you know, I think of um, the guys that are with Daniel, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We believe God can save us from the fire, but you know, even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship this statue Mm. because we still trust our God. That kind of willingness to go, I'm going to look foolish. I could be wrong. God might not come through in this ministry. God might not come through in this thing I'm doing, but even if he doesn't, it was worth it to try. That willingness to lose it all and continue going 
um, Spurgeon during the downgrade controversy. I know I'm right. I may lose this, you know, giant pastor. I may lose this giant church. I may lose this giant influence I have in the British Empire, but I know that I am following God. And so I'm going to keep going forward anyway. I think that will, A, grow you a lot in your walk with God. Um, and you may fall. Look, <laughs> my first Bible study was so bad. I'm pretty sure I accidentally convinced people I wasn't a Christian. So, you know, your first attempt might go really, really, really poorly. My first ever time teaching a class, I thought I had 40 minutes of content. I had about 15. And then the principal came in for an observation like five minutes after I'd run out. It was horrendous and nightmarish and how bad that went. Yet, I learned, <laughs> come to class prepared with way more than you think you need. You know, that's how we need to learn to be as Christians. Knowing that this may cause failure, I'm still going to take the risk. And trusting God to honor that and over time get you where you need to go. That is what I've been found as be the way it works. The people who wait for God to just kind of magically lay it out. Sometimes it happens, but generally speaking, that's not how it works. All right, we are going to wrap it up there. We're going to put a bow on it and conclude this uh, episode of Revive Conversations. Thank you, listener, for tuning in. And again, we're looking forward to next week uh, when we have sermons coming back, starting with uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Revive Thoughts.